Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 122. So glad you could join me on your Sunday morning or afternoon or evening, wherever you happen to be. Um, Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been a continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do make sure you're subscribed. Click the bell click the like button wherever you're watching this there's something you can click to tell the computer people that you like the content and that's how content spreads to other people who would like the content but don't know they might like the content and it really helps a lot so click that kind of stuff if you would wherever you're listening uh leave reviews on itunes and things like that um now today's guest is jim daniels um, a great poet that we've been publishing for years so it's going to be really cool to meet him but first we're going to talk about our poets respond poem of the day and um that was a moment ago um, and it was a co-written poem. Um, it's really interesting. We've been having a lot of interesting submissions lately. Um, just over the last few um, month or two, we've had um, tr- you know translations um, from ancient Chinese. We've had um, ch- translations from um, um, from Afrikaans, and um, now we have a co-written poem by Never- um, Minerva Swarma and Manash Farak Bhattacharchi. And um, Manash is here with us right now. Unfortunately, Minerva couldn't join us. Um, she's on duty. Um, at work, but uh, but Manash is here, and let's talk to him right now. Um, hey, Manash, how you doing? Hi, Tim. It's uh, nice to be back uh, with you on Rattle, and uh, it's all, always you know uh, warm and exciting to be here. And uh, right now, it's cold in Delhi, but it's warm to be here. Excellent. Yeah, it's cold here too. I might have to put on my sweatshirt later. And the office right. doesn't get any heat. But um, so your poem that you shared today is about um, the poet um, um, Nilmani Pukan, who um, just won the biggest right. award um, in India for poetry. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about him and, and what inspired the poem and, and how you came to, about co-writing it too? Yeah, so, uh, so I've been... Um, aware of uh, Nilmani Fukun's uh, poetry since my graduation um, in Assam, uh, where I was uh, you know, uh, uh, growing up uh, since uh, then I have uh, left Assam, but, but still it, it remains my, my old and my only hometown. And, um, and so we used to read um, Asmi's poetry along with uh, other poetry and my friends who used to read, uh, you know, uh, better um, in Asmis than me? They would uh, sort of bring these books, and we would sit uh, besides the bank of the Brahmaputra River, and and they would read out from from uh, these books. So one was Dilmoni uh, Fukon, then there was Nabokanta Borua, Hananta Tati, and so these uh, these um, Asmis poets. Um, uh, we were very familiar with, along with uh, poets from other languages, uh, not only across India, but ac- ac- across the world. And uh, Nilmani is a very distinguished uh, figure, and and he has been um, in, in the poetry scene for such a long, long time. And and there's something very, very unique in his, in his poetry, and uh, one can, of course, uh, see how uh, he, you know, blended the very uh, local elements of of life and culture 
along with the sort of uh, you know uh, the worldly influences in his poetry like i mentioned uh, how he was inspired by the french uh, symbolist poets and and uh, I, i'm sure many other uh, uh, poets uh, of different kinds as well around the world so you see the influence of modern you know western poetry as much as uh, Uh, you, you know uh, the the, uh, the poetry which is so uh, which is sort of uh, you know coming uh, from his own milieu from 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 within that cultural milieu and one thing which you know particularly uh, struck me when i was again rereading some some of the poems that uh, how there is this very very sharp uh, pithiness in his language and 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 even as you see you know there are many uh, poems where he really breaks down a certain uh, idea that he's uh, he's pursuing in a particular poem how how he breaks them down into small stanzas and each stanza speaks a very different thing so so it is like a series of haikus or or a series of something else uh, uh, this is a uh, you know some something for instance that i uh, f- find in a lot of poems of let's say the spanish poet uh, antonio machado for instance you know his his song verse and proverbs you know that one poem of his which i have in mind again interestingly even that poem which you know i'm suddenly recollecting uh, at the top of my head of machado which is uh, song verse and uh, song verse and proverbs uh, that poem is also you know very similar to a sort of language that uh, neil moni uses because uh antonio machado is also somebody who is very contemporary and yet you know who uses these both elemental and epic uh, uh you know sort of um, metaphors to to uh, sort of bring about a language which is very uniquely local in the cultural sense and and yet the universal so this paradox between the local and the universal is 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 very much present in Nilmani's uh, poetry, which 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 is really something fascinating, and which speaks to us right here in the middle of twentieth uh, century. Uh, sorry, twentieth uh, century. Yeah, it is. Um, a lot of times, I choose a poem just as I'm reading the submissions that I have the most fun with, and it was so fun to read this poem, which is just a wonderful poem. But then go and look at um, Nilmani's work, um, which you can find. There are a lot of poems on um, um, poetryinternational.org. But if you Google it, there are a lot of translations into English that that people can read. Yes. And um, it was really fun to be introduced to a new wonderful poet that I'd never heard of. Um, and so this poem, though, was written co-written by you and um, Minerva Swarma. Um, how did that come about? Like, who started that, and and how did it go back and forth across different states in India? Right. So, um, so uh, I have known uh, Minerva uh, for some time, and uh, she writes excellent poetry, very sharp and 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 powerful. Her her metaphors are 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 very strong, and uh, so we have been thinking about you know doing some collaboration uh, whenever there is um, an occasion for it. and so we were just talking about poetry and suddenly uh, she mentioned uh, that uh, you know fukun uh, got the gyan pita for she she was the first person uh, to bring news to me and uh, since that moment you know i have been thinking uh, about this and then i sort of proposed to her that uh, you know why why don't uh, uh, both of us do something because uh, it is interesting that you know this is a way where i can also you know sitting in delhi uh, get sort of uh, you know uh, get 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 uh, 
back to sort of this lost conversation with with the poetry of my old hometown and of those poets that I known and and read so much while growing up so this will be for me this poem for me is also sort of a homecoming um you know this will be my roots in assam and and she is there uh, she is she lives in uh, you know my old hometown so i thought that confluence between uh, you know you know me and her writing this poem together is also a sort of homecoming for me and this conversation with her who is there so so and and then also nilmani fukun who is um uh the poet of assam and 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 somebody from uh, that part of uh, uh the world as well so i thought this would be a nice sort of confluence that can happen through this poem and that is what i proposed to her and she was immediately uh, you know game for it and and we started uh, working and uh, so there there were a few ideas but this idea that we uh, you know got from this particular epic that i used for the poem which is a uh, very simple but deceptively simple because also very mysterious uh, sort of uh, you know three lines on love and on somebody uh, speaking about love and you know and when do we not hear it uh, you know what on you know what makes us not hear something uh, or or apparently not hear what is most precious to us so this moment was sort of interesting and we thought uh, try and work uh, you know and and imagine on this thing and so that's how you know it 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 came about yeah, excellent. Well, I'm so glad you could join us um, and stand up late there to join us too, um, to introduce this poem. And since Minerva can't be here because she's working right now, um, I think we're going to play the uh, audio for the poem for everybody home. So I'm just going to say goodbye to you and uh, say thank you very much uh, for, for sharing this just wonderful poem and for, for introducing it and introducing us to a great poet too that a lot of people probably aren't familiar with. Um, so thanks so much. And um, it was great talking to you, Manash. Thank you, Dean. Yep. Goodbye. Same. Same. Yes, that was um, Manash Farak Batarcharchi with, um, um, well, a moment ago is a poem coming up, and I'm going to show it here, um, and we'll let the, uh, the audio play. A moment ago, Minerva Sharma, Manash Farak Bhattacharji. No, I don't remember anything at all now. Did you tell me a moment ago that you love me? Nilmani Fukan. There was no cloud in the sky. A moment ago, it was wordlessly blue. I met you on earth and looked for you in the blue, like a letter of fate that may drop from heaven. You told me once you loved me. I did not hear you as a plane flew overhead. You did not repeat it. It is inauspicious, you said, to repeat what is unheard. I let it pass. I felt you passing through me like thread through the needle's eye. You were the eye of a storm that unstitched me. I breathed the air of oblivion. We remembered each other in road signs, bird sounds marooned by language that separated us like islands. It was the inflamed sun, the earth's sodden mouth that sucked and sucked like an infant at his mother's breast. It was the sky that swam above us like a giant blobfish. Was it the moment when you said you loved me? All words are birds by day, 
by night meteors. Only time is still. It flies nowhere. I hear your voice in the stillness, carried by the wind that bends the paddy fields. Someone broke into a song. The air was ripe with premonitions. I couldn't say we had arrived or bid farewell. I only remember the sound of harvesting. I confess to the wind what I had to tell you in silence. The predicament of a stone flung into the still water. The loneliness of a cricket chirping. A shrill sound pricks the thick skin of night. I lay down, exhausted. This night is carved in stone. The cricket in the dark is chirping your name. I am lost in the cacophony of silence. Did you tell me you love me? And that was today's Poets Respond poem. A moment ago, um, by Minerva Swarma and Manash Farak Bhattacharji. Um, and it was a tribute to Nilmani Pukan, the poet who just won the, what is the award called? Um, it is the the Jinpinth Award in India, the, India's highest literary prize. And he won the 56th um, award. And uh, now we're going to move on to today's guest. We actually have a, another Poetry Spawn poem, but there's not time for it right now. So we'll do that one, that Tuesday poem. We'll preview at the end of the, the featured segment. But right now we're going to move on to Jim Daniels, our main guest for today. I'm going to take a brief break, and I will be right back in just a moment with Jim. back. Thanks for your patience. Uh, a native of Detroit, Jim Daniels currently lives in Pittsburgh and is the Thomas S. Baker University Professor Emeritus at Carnegie Mellon. His recent books include Rowing Inland uh, from Wayne State University Press and The Perp Walk. He also co-edited the anthology Respect, the Poetry of Detroit Music. His most recent book, Gunshy, was just published again by Wayne State University Press. Um, Jim Daniels appeared in a ton of issues, five issues of Rattle, most recently number 57, and here he is. It's great to have him on the show, Jim Daniels. Hello, Jim. Hi, Tim. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I just love one of the things about the show that I love so much is meeting poets that I sort of have known through poetry for such a long time, but have never met in person. And this is one of those cases. So it's really cool to put a face to the name and, uh, and hear your voice uh, it live. It's cool for me, too. <laughs> um, do you want to start out with a, a poem from the book? Sure. Uh, this is a poem called High School Diploma 1917. It's a poem about my, my grandmother, but it also gives some other family history that kind of contextualizes uh, how I was raised, really. Family secrets uh, involved here. High School Diploma 1917. Marie Kogan, my grandmother, lost two children within two years. Balancing on a wobbly footstool imported from Ireland, she scrubbed her walls clean of them, and never cleaned again. Marie Kogan lied about her age until the past hazed over into truth. The remaining child conceded to the ghosts, left home and became my father. Marie Kogan brushed my sister's hair with the violence of a true believer and took communion for superstitious reasons. Marie Kogan played cards with neighbor ladies and collected music boxes 
though eventually lost her false teeth and believed I was a doctor come to save her. She took her diploma to the home where it hung above her bed, alone, without photographs. Marie Kogan in stately scrawl enlarged by pride. Few girls finished. Not one careless scrap of her dead children in the stinging white of her shared tiny room lit by music boxes and the stench of dying. My grandfather, entering late through the back door of their rotting wood frame house, takes off his work shoes and hat, washes up at the sink and heads to his own cold room in the back. He quit school to work at Packard's, lying about his age, then had to lie again, pretending to take the day off to sign up for the draft. The only lies he ever told, except the ones of omission, as far as I know. I, who carried both their caskets and laid them into the earth next to the graves of those two children, brushing away dirt from flat stones carved with the names never spoken except haltingly once by my father. Marie Kogan, the priest intoned. She lived her whole life in one house until she could no longer. Marie Kogan, I will sing her name in the old English script. Holy Redeemer High School, have mercy on us all. That was High School Diploma, 1917, from Jim Daniels' new book, Gunshy, uh, from Wayne State University Press, like we just said. And that's a great poem um, to just inter- to introduce the themes of the book, really, which are, are you know looking back and sort of making sense of the past and, and recording it all. Um, and it's just a, a, a great, throughout your work, it's a great chronicler of, um, of stories and, and history. Um, is that something that you set out to do when you wrote this book? Um, how did the book come together? Well, the book actually started out as two separate manuscripts. And I was compartmentalizing the poems too narrowly. So the other half of this uh, is chronicling and remembering. But the other half is thinking about uh, more closer to home, raising my own, my own children, sort of toggling between being a, my parents' child and being a parent myself, you know, in, in that weird sort of space age-wise. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so the thing about, um, that's really interesting about thinking about this sort of time period that's, we're mostly talking about like the 60s and 70s and in Detroit is mostly the setting of these books. And what's always interesting to me is the way that like, like we sort of need to remember culture because it feels like culture is sort of being like rolled over by the internet or something. Whereas we don't have these like local cultures anymore. And so, you know, I grew up in Rochester and um, so we have similar like expressions that that come up through this book. And, but I always think of the way that like um, television has eliminated accents, you know, like, like very slowly over time, um, you know, everything is sort of homogenized into one sort of, dialect. We don't have these really rich accents anymore. It feels like the same thing is happening with regional cultures, where they're sort of being subsumed by this way that we, this, by globalism, that we see, you know, so much from everybody. Everybody sort of gets mingled into the same pot and becomes a one thing instead of different, different, you know, cultures and, and ways of seeing the world. And so is that an is a, is that a port, important thing to you as you write poems, to, to record and, and find... Um, you know, find meaning that, that, that that's rich in those stories that you have? Yeah, that, that's a good question. And I, I think it is. I mean, when I started reading poetry, so I come from a family of auto workers in Detroit. 
and my grandfather, actually my great-grandfather, uh, and my grandfather worked for Packard Motor till they went bankrupt. My father worked for Ford. I worked for Ford for a while. My brother recently retired from Chrysler, so it's just all the way through. And when I started reading poetry, I wasn't seeing the people that I love the most and care the most about showing up in a lot of poetry. So I guess I've always felt like this place is important and these lives are important too. And then I've spent, uh, after moving from Detroit, after a brief time in Ohio, I spent the majority of my adult life in Pittsburgh, which is a very similar town. You go from the Motor City to the Steel City. So there is a sense of, you know, what some people refer to as the, the Rust Belt, and also the sense of that time period kind of coming to a close, or it's at least, uh, you know, it, it peaked a long time ago and has been kind of on a downward uh, spiral, the, de the deindustrialization of America. And so I want to kind of chronicle that too. Not that the old, the old days were perfect or anything, but uh, the people there were living lives, important lives, where everything that happens, everything else was going on. And in some way, the stakes might have been even higher. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's hear another poem from the book. Okay. Yeah. So sort of moving down a generation to a poem about my father and shining our shoes, which was a, a ritual before he went to church on Sundays. <laughs> Sunday best. <clears throat> Something men did, taught their sons, made a mess. Newspapers spread on the kitchen floor. Pale green tiles swirled with white and black camouflage for spills and stains. The tins of shinola, the brushes, the polishing rage, rags, rage, walls cigarette yellow, the religion of blending in, passed down by generations who performed with robotic clarity to an audience of auto parts, who punched time clocks and drove home and scrubbed up and slept or stayed out and drank and either way punched in again the next day. Applying the polish, rubbing it in, buffing one shoe, the other, for Sunday, God's strange ideas about purity involved a distinction between shit and shinola, shoes for the church of no fun. God wore a fedora and docked your pay since time told no lies. Our father who art po polishing his shoes, one hand in a shoe, the other on a brush, a slashing slap against it, he taught us satisfying in a way that did not involve fists. Four boys waiting our turns at the polished tin, a shine we could see in lieu of shame, shameola, looking down like we always did. His were steel-toed, cheap from the plant store. You couldn't tell unless you stepped on them. You'd think they'd last forever, and you'd be right. My grandfather unscrewed spikes off golf shoes he found at Goodwill, to wear on special occasions. He'd forget until he'd put his feet up. I wore down football spikes, dragging them over cement, riding my bike home from practice to send up sparks. Can you see me back then, uncamouflaged in dim light in front of the high school? Sparkola, polished smeared newsprint, wine ads, obits, the funnies. I've lost my way, my black tracks. One year we got plastic shoes from Goodwill or St. Vincent de Paul or Salvation Army. My memory is smeared by camouflage. You can't polish plastic shoes, we learned, as it's smeared like sin on the surface. Nothing could penetrate 
just scratch and scuff. Polish marred the tile floors of church that day we wore them, shuffling past the holy water and slumping into a long, empty row near the back, as always. On our way out, we saw the streaks we'd made. We pretended it was always that way, which is as good a camouflage as anything. I love that last line. And that was uh, Sunday Best from Gun Shy. And that was one of those phrases that I hadn't heard in so long. My my father used to say, you don't know shit from Shinola. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I remember as a kid, I didn't know what Shinola was. So I uh, I think I might have never learned what Shinola was. So I only figured out what that expression meant um, reading this poem. Um, but there's another poem that touches on topics that, that come up a lot in the book, which is the sort of the shame or the the sort of maybe... I don't know, like not fitting in kind of feeling from growing up in a blue collar, like Rust Belt type area. Um, how, how does that, that play into your, you know, into your life as a poet entering academia and becoming a professor and, and you know, sort of widely published and stuff like that? Um, is that something that, that, that you feel a lot? Well, it's funny because I felt it on both levels, uh, you know, with the working class folks who enter academia and in other contexts, they talk about this too, the imposter syndrome, where you feel like you don't really belong and that somebody's going to find you out and find out where you came from and kick you out the door. And, uh, you know, I have a poem in the, in the book uh, about that as well later on, where it's about you know, getting honored at the school and then ha- but having my parents come and feeling uh, really protective of them. It's called the secret agent uh, bookcase. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, so, so yeah, that comes up. And also the sense of, uh, you know, continuing to m- want to maintain my connections to this place and to these people. Uh, and, you know, there's that sense. So when I published my first book uh, way back in 1985, you know, one of the reviewers said, well, now that he's in, in academia, he's going to have to start to you know, learn how to pronounce, I think the word was chamois, and it's like chamois, the official <laughs> word for it. And, and I, I kind of took that as a challenge, like I was supposed to move beyond that subject matter when it's, you know, my formative years and, you know, a lot of my family's still there. And so... I took it as a challenge in my next book after that, it's called Punching Out, which took place entirely in an auto factory. I said, I'm not going to go away from it. I'm just going to go deeper. So, you know, I write about a lot of different subjects, but that's still a place that comes back to me on, on, uh, unbidden. I mean, it's just, I sit down to write, the memories start sparking and off I go. Yeah. Um, let's hear another poem. Yeah. Uh, so the one I thought I would read now is called Potato Skins, which is a kind of, uh, it pairs with the Sunday Best poem in terms of, uh, you know, family life at home, and particularly, you know, my mother. Potato Skins. Steam rose from broken skins like sentimental music. None of us played or sang or even hummed in our house. If my father was home, we said grace. If he wasn't, silence sufficed. Our deaf grandmother couldn't could have broke our hearts if she hadn't cut so many farts. She hunched into prayer, surrounded by mad lambs of God. 
I breathed in steam, the off-white flesh, the brief tangled substance of heat. A hard stick of margarine passed in ritual agitation as things quickly cooled. Love's harsh mirage dissipated as we bumped elbows and squirmed around a tiny table. Three of us squeezed on a long bench against the wall like panelists on a canceled game show. We loved those skins, rough jackets pocketed with melted margarine. So when we bit, yellow spilled on our chins. Five children, my mother, my grandmother, and my, he'll eat when he gets home. Meatloaf and baked potatoes, God and all his incarnations, body and blood, carnal communion. So what if we called it butter and forgot to wipe our chins? We put our faces in the steam and we wept. That was Potato Skins from Gunshy. Um, one of the things that just always stands out in your poems, Jim, or, or the, the amount of like detail that you pull up in the different places you go and the things that you weave together. Um, so it always makes me curious about your writing process. Like, like how do you keep track of so many details? Is, is it all like in the memory that comes out as you're writing or through drafts? Do you have like n extensive notebooks? Um, do you do a lot of research back to things that you vaguely remember to get the details right? Like how do you pack poems so full of detail? Yeah, um, that's a good question because it's not really so conscious. Sometimes it's like you open a, a crack in a door and everything just comes rushing out. So you remember things you didn't think you remembered or you make stuff up uh, that seems real to you or to, or to me. And then it, it comes uh, and then I, I just try and write as fast as I can. It is true in terms, I don't do it consciously, but so last week I was home in Detroit visiting my 93-year-old father who lives by himself in a, a condo now. And we drove back through the old neighborhood just because he hadn't been back there in a while. And they moved like 20 years ago. And, you know, just driving those streets again, I started... Uh, jotting down notes. It wasn't a plan. I mean, just take my dad for a drive, drive around the old neighborhood, but I just started, you know, the sparks of, oh, who lived where and what happened uh, to them. And uh, so, though, I just tell you a quick thing. So last year during COVID, you know, my siblings are spread all over the country. My, my brother lives out uh, actually in California. He, he created a game where he, he uh, drew a map of our street and it was a contest among the five kids in terms of who could name the most people who lived on the street. And I just kicked everyone's butt. I mean, <laughs> they were amazed at how many people's names I remembered. So somehow it's, it's lodged in there. Mm -hmm. uh, do, do you think the poems, I mean, like, like re-entering those spaces through writing a poem sort of makes those experiences come alive again? And so you sort of relive them as you're writing and thinking. Does that enhance your memory, do you think? Like the, your ability to go back in time, is that because of poetry? Or do you think poetry is because of, the, of, of that you like to go back in time? Uh yeah. I'm not sure it's an either or. I think it could be partly both in terms of uh, pres preserving memory. There's a quote that 
I've always loved and used. It's by the novelist and screenwriter Richard Price, who said something like, oh, where you're from is like the zip code of your heart. And that just resonated for me in terms of, you know, so I keep those places in my heart and uh, maybe cling, stubbornly cling on to them in some way as part of my identity. Uh, and, and so it might help me remember more um, in terms of b being a writer and conjuring things. One of the interesting things that happen as I get older is, you know, my memory isn't as good as it used to be. But in terms of writing, it, it frees me up a little bit more. Not that I've always been, I, uh, you know, attached to what's really true. I mean, I haven't been, really been able to write non nonfiction, but that uh, it sort of gives me ro more room to maneuver within a particular landscape without remembering, you know, the facts. Because uh, one of my colleagues uh, used to always used to say, the truth is no excuse for a bad poem. And uh, that's something that I, I need to remember. Yeah, it's true. It really happened. But that doesn't make it a good poem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's definitely true. So that's one of the things I, I'm always curious about is how, how tied you are, you know, how tied you feel to, to facts in a poem. Like, do you, like some poets feel like they need to be completely accurate in every detail. And some people feel like it's more about the holistic truth of the poem. Where, where do you fall in that continuum? That's funny because with my family and not that a lot of my old friends re read my books, uh, but <laughs> occasionally, you know, some of them do and they'll comment, well, uh, that really happened to so-and-so or because, because I combine events and people partly through the idea of poetry being a, really compressed form of, of writing, but I don't feel, I like the, the idea of it not having to be completely literally true. Though, on the other hand, my poems are probably more autobiographical than a number of other poets who I, who I admire. So in most poems, I can point to, you know, what actually happened, which is often the spur for the poem. But once I start getting into it, I, I'm trying to find the emotion in there that some, in some cases is what prompts the memory in the first place is the emotional attachment to it. Um, well, I should say, if anybody has any questions for Jim, um, please do feel free to leave them um, in the comment ch and the chat areas on either Facebook or YouTube. Those are the two that I monitor. If you're watching somewhere else, you can't do it. But uh, if you're on Facebook or YouTube, leave, a, leave any questions for Jim there. Um, let's hear the next poem, Jim. Okay, uh, so I'm going to, like I said, toggle into uh, poems that are based on my children and experiences with them. So this is a set in Pittsburgh. It's called Fishing in the Cement Pond, Shinley Park, Pittsburgh. So I lived most of my time in Pittsburgh in a very urban neighborhood, but it was right next to one of the large city parks. And... Another thing that happens, I think, in terms of seeing my own childhood is I, when I had when I became a parent, I started to see th things through the eyes of my kids, you know, with that sort of innocent view and the, the magic that kids find in the mundane. And this is a poem about uh, my son finding something magical and just a little trip to the park. It's called Fishing in the Cement Pond. And here we go. Most people don't even know about the pond at the bottom of the deep hollow, reached only by an ancient staircase crumbling down the hillside. 
We slid down on our asses with our plastic poles and can of worms dug from our yards packed dirt. My son, six, the pond enormous in his squint. Under the shadow of the high bridge among crushed appliances and bald tires, green glass shards and disintegrating cardboard, we sat on the pond cement lip, man-made and man-ruined. Yet fat wizened catfish, murky shadows of carp wallowed. Flimsy bluegill shimmered with illusion. He wanted to keep his first. It swallowed the hook. I wiggled it out, returned the fish to water, but it floated back toward us through the murk. We could almost see our house above the hillside, but my son was glad we couldn't. We saw a large man in a milk crate fishing as if he cared. My son wanted to row across on a raft of tires or in a fridge with the door removed. Above us, the city passed another hot, endless August day. Traffic from the freeway hissed through trees. Our dead fish shone flat in the sun. The blind fisherman flinched at our casting. He asked my son to tell him what he saw and was told a tale of gigantic proportions. The man cocked his head and laughed. I do believe I hear the waves, he said. The cement pond, giant seashell, a rusted car magnified all sound. We ran out of worms or the fish stopped biting. A thin line of sweat glistened on my son's upper lip. He caught his first fish and talked to a blind man. A city waited above us with red signs and yellow lines. Can we get lost on the way home, he asked. You need a map for that, I said. We struggled up the broken steps. How did the men get down here, he asked. The sea was vast and unknowable. That was fishing in the cement pond from Gunshy. Um, one of the things that I always like to know, I'm always curious about how poets became poets. Do you remember like the first poem you wrote that meant something to you? And like, why did you write it in the first place? Like what got you into writing poetry? Um, you know, for me, there was one poem where I surprised myself and then I was like, oh, this is cool. I'm surprising myself. <laughs> and that's what made it interesting to me. But what was it for you that that sort of lighted it up from something you did a little bit maybe into a whole career that you ended up, you know, pursuing for your whole life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you know, I have a couple theories. Uh, one is well, I, I went to a remedial speech class from kindergarten through eighth grade, which is a long time to go to remedial speech class. For some reason, I just couldn't correct my problem. I, I, I slurred all my words, S S H C H J Z. I was just one big, blur so as a result you know uh particularly at certain ages you know kids find your weak spot and they tease you about it and so if somebody wanted to get to me all they had to do was imitate the way i talked and uh, you know, i would be ashamed and embarrassed quickly so i developed this habit of keeping things inside unless i was with my good friends or family people i trusted i was really quiet in school and then when after I corrected my speech problem, it was ingrained in my personality to be uh, withdrawn like that and, and shy. So I started, I had a history teacher in 10th grade who said, uh, who said uh, he was impressed with a assignment I wrote 
on a film we saw in class about the fall of the Roman Empire. I remember it very specifically. And he said, uh, why don't you just uh, do some writing on your own and, sh and, show and you can show it to me. And the truth was I'd already been writing on my own. I just thought I was writing my thoughts because I didn't like poetry because I thought it had to be a certain way. The poems we were reading in school then were all poems that were kind of hard to understand. It was like and some of the teachers used the crossword puzzle approach, which meant they had the answer and you were supposed to figure out, oh, this is what the poem means. And then you get a gold star or whatever. So, so poetry was intimidating me uh, because it was often written in a, a different version of English and, um, and in this form that I had a hard time connecting to my life. But uh, this history teacher took me over to one of the English teachers who uh, was interested in creative writing. And he, he, took, he took some of these random sheets of paper. He started writing his slashes and he said, you're writing poetry. And my initial reaction was, no, I, I hate poetry. I'm not <laughs> writing poetry. But uh, then he, he sort of psyched me out. So then I started writing poems like what I thought poetry was supposed to sound like. So I still remember, so I published, my first two published poems were in my high school literary magazine. And the first one was this horrible, self-pitying rhyming poem. I still remember, I'll give you a couple lines and I'll get a sense for it. Uh, I who am about to die, I who weep but cannot cry. I'm losing my mind, you say. Perhaps I think it went astray. And it went on from there. So <clears throat> that was not a, my first poem, but the other poem, I spent my high school years, three of them anyway, working in a liquor store. Uh, technically, I was too young to work in a liquor store, but it was a kind of a neighborhood corner store. The owner lived next to the store. We knew everybody who came in. Uh, and But in this store, there was a candy counter right next to the liquor counter. And uh, you have these kids, they put their change on top of the counter and the counter was under glass, and they would point at things, and you would pull them out, put them in a bag. So there was this kind of desperation the kids had, an innocent excitement about getting candy, but right next to it was a liquor store hmm. counter. And in those days, all the liquor was behind me on the shelves, and people had to point, and I would take the bag off the shelf and give it to them. So there was these two kinds of desperation right next to each other. So that poem had... so I wrote a poem called Growing Up at a Party Store. We call them party stores in Detroit. That uh, I rhymed the names of Penny Candy with the names of liquor. Ah, mm -hmm. so, so I was writing about something I knew about in the confines of, of that tiny little store, not these deep abstract thoughts. So I was writing about something I knew about and cared about, and it had a tension, emotional tension. In it. So that was my first real poem. And that sort of set me off to give me a little more confidence about writing about things that I actually knew. Yeah, it's so interesting to hear. I mean, there's a lot of different places I could take it now, but but to hear the the first of all the 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 secrets, the way that secrets are such a part of poetry. Because I just interviewed um, James Pennebaker for the the winter issue, the psychologist, about how. Um, you know, writing, expressive writing, as he calls it, actually brings about physical health benefits because you don't have these secrets locked up and, you know, all the, the reasons for that. And, and your first poem, too, is about that secret about the, um, 
I think it was your father's um, siblings who died, that nobody ever spoke their names either. And there's a way that, 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 that really revealing secrets and not having to gnaw at them is, is so central to what poets do. And, and what, you know, so that, that's really fascinating to hear that insight that, that, was the, the, that was what led you to poetry in the first place. And then the other thing that is the, um, that, that party store that you called it um, comes up, that's the title poem. In, um, in this book, um, where that store was actually robbed, which I think is probably too long of a poem to read here. Um, but, but you were telling me when we called, talked earlier um, to set this up that, um, that, that it was, um, while sort of, I don't know, I want to say delirious or from Lyme disease that you were going through as you were writing that poem, um, which is just such a fascinating story. Do you want to tell, just share how that, the title poem, Gunshy, came to be? Because um, that was really interesting to hear. Yeah, sure. No, I, I did get Lyme disease. It's been sort of going across Pennsylvania and spreading all over the place. And I just happened to be out in the country uh, wearing a pair of shorts. And uh, I didn't notice it at the time. Uh, some people invited us out for a dinner. And we didn't know that they, they both had had Lyme disease. But anyway, so I got home and the next day, uh, well, I woke up in the middle of the night and the bed was just completely soaked with sweat. It's like the outline of my body. I'd never seen anything like that. And so I, I, luckily I, we identified it pretty quickly because I had the trademark uh, bullseye rash that they look for for Lyme disease. But uh, for a number of days, and actually it was a couple of weeks, uh, before I got started feeling like myself again, I was a kind of kind of delirious, and uh, you know I could not concentrate at all, not even watching a TV show. It was just, uh, but one day I just sat down and started typing, and it ended up you know it's a long poem as you say, and it was the longest poem I'd written in a long time. I mean, it, but it was like all the natural barriers that I would. Sometimes as a writer, you try and eliminate because you want to, you know, get get deep and not say, oh, I can't write that or I can't write that. Uh, and so it just went places through the freedom of that delirium of uh, that, that I didn't expect. So you mentioned, you know, being surprised by something you wrote. And that, that was what I felt later when I got better because I was, you know, just I started out just uh, rambling all over the place. But. Then I said, no, I think there's something going on here in the, the jumps that a lot of long poems take. And so I'll, I, I wouldn't recommend that as a writing technique. <laughs> yeah. And I think some people, you know, we know, we all know a fair number of uh, poets and artists who rely on drugs and alcohol and it creates problems uh, or big problems a lot of times. And I think that's one of the attractions uh, I read this article where some writers said, well, I like to write when I have a cold because that creates a slightly altered uh, sense of consciousness. So it, I, I think sometimes it can help to release things, coming back to the secrets thing that you were mentioning, uh, because the tendency with secrets is to guard them. And you know that family secret about having these two, uh, an aunt and an uncle that I didn't even know existed, I didn't find out until I was in college, um, just blew me away, and it suddenly I understood my grandparents and my father in a in some in a more uh, 
in a clearer light based mm-hmm. on what they've gone through. Do you think they, they suffered for holding that in? Like, do you think that was something that, that they should have um, talked about? Or do you think that it was a coping mechanism that helped them get through life? Uh, well, it's interesting because, I, I, like I mentioned, my dad, being 93, he, in his old age, has actually started talking about it a little bit. And he said it, it just destroyed his parents' mm-hmm. marriage. Uh, yeah. And that the, his brother who died was the favorite, and uh, he, he never felt like he could do anything to mm. uh, to equal, you know, the, the potential that his dead brother had had. But none of that came out, and they never talked about it. Yeah, it just seems to me that, that so many families, pretty much every family almost, has secrets, and then the secrets are scarring, and we don't, we don't, you know, you can't heal if if you're not accessing them. Um, well, let's um. So, so over on um, Facebook, someone says, uh, Philip Stern says, 10 minutes later, and I still taste the potatoes with margarine. <laughs> yeah, me too, actually. Um, so let's hear another poem and, and get another one of those feelings, Jim. Well, this, this poem kind of connects to some of the things we were just talking about. Uh, my, my daughter got very sick when she was in ninth grade. So at that age, a lot of, you know, Becoming a teenager, you become really self-conscious and self-aware as you're changing into adulthood. And so she was like deathly ill, but she was almost, she seemed like she was embarrassed about being so sick. And, and this is uh, actually, in, in the poem, there's at least three of these. They're Villanelle-like poems uh, that where I use repetition, but not the rhyme so much. So this is called Private Room. My daughter got sick and nearly died, fall ninth grade. She combed her hair out. I kissed her goodbye and goodnight each time I left, and she had no choice, attached to grim tubes, prone, ashen. My daughter, sick and nearly dying of embarrassment as doctors probed that mystery and fought among themselves. I missed her goodbyes and goodnights. We watched an old movie from childhood, no game shows or reality. 14, my daughter, sick with worry she would die, I slept on the floor and wept. I pressed heat packs against her to stop tremors, then kissed her since I could. Good night seemed insufficient, so did I. No curfew in that moonless room without boys. My daughter got sick, death passed her by. I snuck her home. We did not kiss. Good night. And that was private room from Gunshy. Um, another poem with a great ending, and, and pretty much every poem that you've read, I think literally every poem you've read so far, um, somebody has said great ending. <laughs> the end in the comments. So, do you want to talk a little bit about about that? How you come to the end of a poem? And um, I, I noticed like there are different ways. Just you know, looking at the ones we've read so far, that there are different different sort of styles that you use. There's sort of a um, a sort of a jumpy kind of one line ending. And then there's a, you know, there's different sort of, you know, coming up and coming down feelings to it. How do you know how to end a poem? Uh, yes. The, the eternal question. Uh, well, I'm one of those writers and I know a number of other writers who have this experience. I usually write past my ending because I don't recognize it as the ending or I feel like I have to explain a bunch of stuff uh, mm-hmm. because I'm because I'm not sure that the readers will get it, uh, and, and maybe I 
I'm still trying to figure out what I want to say anyway. So I sort of write it down. So I have what I call the uh, sandwich theory of poetry, which is because when I sit down to write, there, there's a warm-up kind of thing that I go through where I'm just sort of noodling and doodling, and I, I'm not sure where I'm going. And then when it works, uh, something, you know, it's like shifting gears on a car. You're suddenly moving forward and uh, picking up speed. And then, and like like I said, I, and then I often write past the endings afterwards. So my sandwich idea is that the pieces of bread are like the beginning part and the end part that, that you don't really need. And that ideally the poem is just, you know, the meat or the cheese or the peanut butter and jelly, the good stuff inside you leave. And the, maybe the bread's a white space at the beginning and the end. I, I don't know if that metaphor works, but uh, it works for me in just in terms of uh, going through and seeing if I've written past the ending. And another thing that I that tends to work for me sometimes is I'll find that I end with a more abstract line, right? Telling, explaining, kind of summary, su summarizing. But uh, so I can either cut that and see whether it works or I can move it up. Mm. So often there's an ending and then there's a more general explanation. But if I put the explanation first, then it's more like it's setting up that final image. So the reader's left with that image, not me explaining what the image means. So, uh, and, and that's one of the things, well, titles and endings are things that still, you know, sometimes I'll publish a poem in a magazine and then when I'm putting it in a book, I'll end up changing the title or the ending, mm -hmm. something that, those are the two most important places, uh, right? And so I end up just tinkering here and there. Yeah, it's just interesting to hear you say that because that is like the number one thing, the best advice to any writer, I think, is to work on those endings and, and that idea because, you know, as an editor, one of the only edits we ever make is to cut either the last stanza or the first stanza <laughs> because it's just, it's something everybody does. Either it takes a while to get into the poem and they didn't, don't need that, um, you know, sort of the, it's like the runway, like you want to fly, and, you know, yeah. you don't need the runway taking off or landing. You just need to fly. And um, so so that's just the number one piece of advice. Really the only thing, other than like a few line edits of like this, you know, word was clunky or something. Um, we don't really edit much except for that beginning and ending. And it's just deleting. <laughs> Saying like the poem really yeah. ends here. So we'll publish <laughs> it that way. And um, yeah, so it's cool to hear you say that. And, and um, um, so so you've been a teacher for a long time. Um, and so is there, is there any other advice that you have? Um, do, do you teach creative writing usually, or do you teach literature? Uh, I've taught mostly creative writing. So I, I retired in June, mm -hmm. but, but now I'm teaching a, a low residency MFA program back in Michigan uh, at Alma college because it's, it's Michigan and I, I still love Michigan. Um, uh, so, uh, but it's been mostly creative writing and, I like, uh, like in particular, I, I like working with people on their book manuscripts and, and doing that work because that's something that you don't always learn when you're writing poem by poem. It's accumulating the poems, but there is a, an art to putting a manuscript together. Not that I, it's always easy for me either, but I like doing it with other people's work. <laughs> oh, this one plays off of this one. So, you know, the placement becomes so important in a, in a book uh, where when maybe you wrote them two years apart, but uh, they belong next to each other in the book. 
and that's something that I like working with uh, with writers on. And uh, I'm a, because a lot of my poems are narrative. I really work on compression mm-hmm. and just seeing if you know take out a couple words, and that's that's making the poem better for me. And I'm always trying to sniff away at my students' poems as well, saying, "Well, just think about it. You know, think think about whether you really need this." This word or not? Poetry is so great because the difference between like saying "uh" and "the" can be a huge thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, so you know, you are pretty prolific. I mean, I don't know if you might be at the point you've lost track of how many books you've published. Is it like sixteen or seventeen or something like that? Um, do you even know? <laughs> uh, well, it depends. You know, with chapbooks, mm-hmm. and uh, I have a couple of collaborative books with photographers. So it depends on kind of how you. You count them. I think I have 16 full-length uh-huh. collections of just poems. So having put poems together, I, I get the sense that you don't write, um, that you write the poems first and then sort of figure out the collection, um, you know, once you have a body of poems or something to go through. How does that process work? You know, you've done now that you've done it 16 times or however many. Um, do you have any advice for somebody trying to put a collection together? Because a lot of people, you know, a lot of people, most of the viewers write poems, and we have, you know, a whole body of poems. Um, how do you go about making that a book? Like, when do you know you have enough? How do you identify the themes and, and the order? Like, how does a book come together? Uh, it varies a little bit. Like, like I said at the beginning, this started out as two separate manuscripts. Uh, <laughs> because, because, partly because of my process. So I have... Uh, alphabetical folders of every poem that's been published, but not in a book. Because that's not that it's necessarily the stamp of approval. I have a lot of poems that I've published in journals that are probably never going to make it into a book. Uh, you know, I, I've outgrown the poem or uh, I have another poem that's too similar to that poem or whatever. But uh, every so often, when I, it's just a feeling or, oh, let me just go through the folders and see what I got. And then I'll just, and I have to have the physically printed copies uh, just to do that for me. So I'll just go through and pull out all the poems that I'm, that I'm drawn to, to pull out that I think, you know, might make a book. And then I take that stack of poems and I take, usually it's on a big table or ping pong table works good. And I, I start putting them in the groups and then, that that are kind of similar in some way or another. And then you kind of do the count in terms of, well, a typical book of poems, I guess it's like 60 to 80 pages or something like that. So mine tend to be a little bit longer. I I try and push that closer to 100 uh, if I can with the publisher. But uh, then I start, and, and that's where you I start to notice like tendencies like you were talking about endings, sometimes uh, I'll notice like, well, I kind of like both these poems that they're making the same move at the same place. Cause you develop little ticks sometimes mm-hmm. out of a habit or laziness. And then, you, and then you don't notice them from poem to poem, but then you got all these poems and say, ah, I'm doing that again. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, uh, maybe I shouldn't do it so much in the same book. Uh, well, let's hear another one. I think we have two poems left uh, to share. Let's do another one and then a little more talk. And then the last poem. Okay, well, I want, I want to read this poem that's a little longer, and we'll see if we have time for the other one. Okay. Because this poem was published in Rattle, and because it's it's a different location. So uh, I do go to, go to France uh, 
whenever I, I get a chance and can afford it. And you know, the, the small village in the middle of nowhere that we have friends. And this poem is sort of set, it's called The Grand Design. And it's set in a, a couple places that we visited over there. So it has two epigraphs. One is the, the Millau viaduct that spans the valley of the River Tarn in southern France is the tallest bridge in the world. The bridge has been consistently ranked as one of the great engineering achievements of all time. So it's a stunning bridge. And then second one, legend has it that Roquefort cheese was discovered when a youth eating his lunch of bread and used milk cheese saw a beautiful girl in the distance. Abandoning his meal in a nearby cave, he ran to meet her. When he returned a few months later, the mold had transformed his plain cheese in a Roquefort. I mean, I love those myths. Like yeah, yeah. Uh, and so those two things are in here. The grand design. How many times have you had the time of your life? I just had shoulder surgery so I could play softball again. Does that make me a seventh-day resurrectionist? What would Jesus do? He would have had the surgery. My wife and I, are you bored already? The moon and the mad pencil sharpener, is that better? The, the happy moon sharpener and his garden gardener sidekick, hedge clipper. Take one for pain, take two for no pain. Take three and call me in mourning. Hike, call me now and skip the middle part. My wife and I visited the tallest bridge in the world on the way to visit the Roquefort cheese caves in France. The Sound and Light Show gave us the authentic legend of the caves, the boy, the girl, a forgotten lunch, the mold. Ah, the mold. Excuse me, I have to put my pain in the freezer. I'll shoulder the blame for that. Sometimes it's enough to know our old lovers are still out there. We'd prefer not to see a recent picture or hear about their cute children or their recent shoulder surgery or their lifetime of success on the softball diamond or the diamond futures trade. Only, only so many things you can blame on pain pills. While I was at the freezer, I got a lime popsicle. Lime popsicles are the best. What do they put in them, lime or something? Sometimes it's that simple. My wife and I stood on an overlook admiring the bridge. Tall, yes, very tall, but with a grace we could not mock or ignore. The wind so strong it swallowed our laughter. Blown backwards with the others, we all struggled up the scraggly path as if we were not tourists, just old friends trying to learn a new game. We stood at the top while an old new friend took our picture, clinging to each other after 25 years of marriage. Behind us, as beautiful and frightening as the imagination's wedding dress, the bridge stood. I believe in the gooey mess of soft cheese, the lifeline of blue mold, the white sea, Mold is bad, mold is good. Free samples, we're digging in while behind glass, Roquefort wheels are rotated by special Roquefort rotators who know at birth just how far to turn them. It appears I've already forgotten how to spell it, Roquefort. I'm blaming the drugs again. It's hard to be patient, to be a patient, to tell the truth so it matters, so that someone doesn't actually shame you by calculating your batting average. Thunder in the distance. Thunder is the distance. We learn it once, we learn it over and over. We are tested on our knowledge and we fail. Blame it on lime popsicles. The smell after rain might be the closest thing to heaven, but how many other things have been the closest things to heaven? 25 years ago, 
I forgot my sandwich in a cave. Blown backwards, I'm having the time of my life once again, once again and always. The stitches will dissolve or die trying. How many times have you died trying? And that was the grand design. I think that was from the Love Poems issue of Rattle, if I remember right. Yeah. And yeah. Um, just so many great lines. The thunder is the distance. Uh, just a wonderful poem there. Um, so people always want me to do more sort of like actor studio questions, um, which I never, I always forget to do. So here's one. So um, if you had a profession other than being a writer and a poet, what would it be? Uh, well, when I was a kid, I, I always wanted to be a baseball player, which is one of the reasons maybe I played so slow pitch softball for so long. And uh, that, of course, like many poets, I wanted to be a, a rock star too. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I have a very limited skill set, uh, and it doesn't include things like singing or playing an, an instrument. Uh, but I love music. That's why I did that anthology of poems about Detroit music, and that you know that shows up in the book too in various ways. Yeah, that's something we didn't talk about. Like, how much has music been an influence, and 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 what's the relationship between music and poetry? Do you think? I mean, poetry is a kind of music, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, one of the things about you know, a lot of people from Detroit are really proud of our of our music scene. You know, and, and in terms of it, just compared to Pittsburgh, there's just so many uh, innovative, so much innovative music that comes out of Detroit. Obviously, Motown, but uh, you know, rappers like Eminem, or you know, he he grew up very close to where I grew up, actually. And uh, techno music, which uh, people don't usually associate with Detroit, a lot of it mm. uh, emerged from Detroit, where they'd have these huge raves and abandoned car factories. So it's just oh wow, uh, anyway, I had no idea, yeah, yeah. So culturally, uh, it's a, it, it's woven into the fabric of Detroit in ways that sort of has woven into my life. I mean, there's another poem I wrote about uh, called Red Vinyl, about getting a record that was on Red Vinyl by the Jake Giles Band. And um, it's just about how our lives were like black vinyl. But the the music spoke to us in a way, coming back to what I was saying earlier, that the poetry we were learning in school wasn't teaching us. So... I don't draw a firm line or worry about, you know, what's poetry or what's not. You know, Dylan winning an Nobel Prize, I didn't lose any sleep over that, <laughs> like some, some poets seem to have done. Uh, and, and so, and in that, that anthology, you know, respect the poetry of Detroit music, we, we weren't concerned about that. So we included a lot of song lyrics and, uh, and didn't worry about, you know, what's what. And obviously, if you listen to the songs, and you read the lyrics, you get two different things. But I like to think that uh, there's a connection. And even though I don't use a lot of rhyme in my poetry, I, I use a lot of uh, rhythm. And I'm very interested in per, the percussive aspects of language. Because you know, I, I write short stories too, and have done some little films. So I've, I've explored other genres. But one of the things that draws me back to poetry more than anything else is the music of the language. Like I said, in my poetry, there's probably more drums than anything, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like having that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, one follow-up question on the manuscript discussion from um, Dick Westheimer. He asks about themes. Uh, what are your thoughts on themed oh, yeah. versus unthemed manuscripts? Which is something I think about a lot too, only because we have the Rattle Chatbook Prize, and the winners almost always seem to have a theme. And I'm not sure if that's because I want there to be a theme, <laughs> or you know, we like those better, or if it's just that people are, are just. It, it's hard to even think of manuscripts being submitted that don't have a theme. So it seems very. I think we're a lot more theme oriented than we used to be as far as, um, you know, publishing poetry goes. And it might be because you can, you know, publishers like that because you can market a theme and you can't really market, just say this is a collection of poems. So um, maybe that's like the driving force. I'm not sure, but you don't see any, you don't, you don't see as many non-themed manuscripts as you used to, where people used to publish like poems by Jim Daniels, you know? So yeah, what are your yeah. thoughts on that? <laughs> no, that, that, that's a very good point. And I agree, I agree with you that it's become more predominant uh, and I, I think it might have something to do with the predominance of, of contests too, mm-hmm. in, in terms of getting published. But I, I think chapbooks, and one, and one of the things I, reasons I love chapbooks, is because it's it's easier, uh, and I think it works better sometimes in it. It's something that's chapbook length to have to have a deep dive into one theme, mm-hmm. and, and and just. Um, so that that length seems well suited for that. Sometimes in a longer full length book, you know, the theme seems to be defined too narrowly in a way that's detrimental to collection. And that's what it was was happening for me when I had the two different collections when I said, No, I, I, I'm missing a juxtaposition because I've hit the same two themes the same theme so much. So I you know, bringing in the poems about my own kids when and Pittsburgh were an important part of trying to achieve a balance in the manuscript. So with my own books, some of them have been very thematic and others have been much less uh, thematic. And, but yeah, and, and back in the day, these would be, it would just be, well, these are the poems I've written in the last five years. Mm-hmm. And, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a great point though. I feel, I do feel like the length of a chat book, like if, if you write a whole book about one topic, it sort of it tends to drag and it starts to feel like you're stretching it out. But a chapbook is just the, sort of like just the right length for, you know, it's, it's, you can dive into something, but you, you don't spend too much time there. So it kind of is a good, a good length for a theme. Um, and you've done both chapbooks and, and full length books, um, many of both. Uh, let's hear the last poem. We're getting run up on the end of the, the segment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is a short poem. It's called Honorary Honor. Uh, and it's, I, part of it's just being a poet in society where, a lot of people don't read poetry and they don't really care about it so much. Uh, honorary honor. Poet laureate of my neighborhood until I took out garbage on the wrong day. For poets, every day is garbage day, I said. Tell that to the landfill, I said. They appointed the blind woman across the street to replace me. She's loud but polite. Was poet laureate of my house until I forgot to make my bed. I'm just going to lie in it anyway, I said. They said, you're sleeping on the job, and appointed the dog instead. His poem's untranslatable, but he offers protection. Now I'm poet laureate of my closet. Everyone loves me there, alone in the dark. 
it's a great poem to end on honorary honor uh, from Gunshot. Thanks so much, Jim. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And these are just wonderful poems and a wonderful book. And we have a great teaser because we didn't read the title poem. Everybody wants to to know what uh, what that story involves and, <laughs> and where you go with it. So um, every, hopefully everybody will pick up a copy from uh, Wayne State University Press. Um, but excellent talking to you, Jim. Thanks a lot for being a guest today. Well, thanks, Tim. It's a lot of fun. Yep. And it's good to see you. Yeah, for sure. Have a good one. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Yes, that was Jim Daniels with uh, his book, Gunshy, um, right here. There you go. Gunshy. Gunshy. Really interesting cover, too. Um, this is from Wayne State University Press. Um, you can find it at wsupress.wayne.edu. Um, that is their website. And um, do pick up a copy. It's a really, really great book. Now, we are going to go to the open lines in just a second. Um, before we do, let me tell you how it works. Um, oops, that's the wrong thing. This one. So uh, first, email your poem, if you haven't yet, to open mic. That's open M-I-C at rattle.com so I can show it on the screen like I was for Jim's poems. And then choose one or the other, not both, just one or the other. Skype, if you want to be on video, um, type rattle, search, or rattle poetry into the search bar. And just send me a chat message and say hi. And then I will add you to the call list, and I'll call you when it's your turn within the hour. Um, if you would like to um, call in over the phone, the number is 818-850-7727. That's 818-850-7727. And um, just call, let it ring a few times, then hang up, and that will put you on my call list, and I'll know to call you back. Um, so far, everybody we've always had um, has been expecting a phone call. I never had a telemarketer I was calling back or anything, but we'll see if this uh, this process works forever. But for now, that works perfectly. So uh, do give me a call there either way if you'd like to share a poem. Um, they can be poems about anything that you would like. They're news poems, poems you published recently, or the prompt. The prompt this week was to take a walk around your neighborhood and write a poem about that. So um, that is your prompt poem, but you can anything goes here. The lines are open, and I'll be back in just a moment after uh, stretching and all that good stuff. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Let me stretch and uh, get everything all set up so we can do some open lines. Now, we're also going to do um, the Tuesday poem from Poets Respond. Um, Devin Balwet, who's been published several times, is the poet. Um, and she's not going to be able to join us today, but we will share her poem in just a moment. But let's first do the... Um, well, let's do that right now. So um, so Devin was writing, um, and she's one of those poets who published... She, she pretty much sends a poem every week for Poets Respond. And we just really love the poets who do that because that proves, you know, if there's a good poet that um, sends a poem every week, then we always have good poems no matter what. And even, you know, even on slow weeks. And this week's poem was this story, which I found interesting too, um, this Birds Aren't Real article from the New York Times. And I wonder if it's going to block me out or let me show a little bit of it. Let's see. Yeah, so this was, um, um, yep, it's blocked me. Well, anyway. Um, this was an article by someone or other <laughs> about how um, there's new conspiracy theory is taking over Generation Z, supposedly, that um, that birds aren't real and part of a surveillance program. And it's one thing that's really interesting, and I didn't actually read this article because, as you see, I don't have a subscription to New York Times. But the interesting thing to me about it is is that it's it seems like it's one of those... Um, you know, tongue-in-cheek, like, meta-conspiracy narratives where the people who believe it, a lot of the people who propagate it don't know that it's not true, but it's a, um, 
like a joke almost that's like half real and half a joke. It's a very strange, a strange phenomena in our times. And um, so that was what, and, and so do check out this article. This is from um, the December 9th um, uh, New York Times. And this is the poem that Devin wrote about it. Um, Birds aren't real, abacadarian. Or do you say abacadarian? I'm not sure how you say that word. But here it is. This is uh, Devin Balwit reading her prop poem, or her poetry spawn poem, which is going to be published on Tuesday. Birds aren't real, abacadarian. Admit it. There's always one outside your window, bobbing on a wire, wearing one, broadcasting back to central command. You in the coffee shop dissing POTUS while a crow dithers by the dumpster, evanescing as soon as you emerge. A cloud of finches follows as you stroll with a friend, griping at the grim state of the Union. Or those geese hovering in the park at the Black Lives Matter protests, hashtag inching closer, faking a grab at some jack-in-the-box scraps while measuring jawlines beneath knit balaclavas, stooges of the cacistocracy. Lilliputian hummingbirds locking in on your subletters, making note of who and how many enter and leave. Note the ridiculous number of robins next time, one under every tree, openly provoking with that repetitive peeping. Question the downward judder of the flicker. QED. Radio equipment is heavy. There you have it. Spies to a one. Even the peacocks. How they seduce you to scrutinize, to lean in close to the iridescence, unaware of the pupils measuring your own. Very clever, I say. And look at the vast supportive armature, the way they mask artifice. David Attenborough posh in the water, extra, extra large t-shirts of the national bird, Audubon birders xing off examples. You don't want to be a sap, do you, filling feeders while the feds zero in on your whereabouts, ready to zap your whole cul-de-sac? And there's another fun poem from Ms. Devin Balwit. And she says uh, in the note, my head whipped around the first time I saw a birds aren't real bumper sticker. I appreciate Peter McIndo's intricate and playful attempts to call attention to conspiracy theories. And um, really, it's just, a I don't know, interesting on a lot of levels. I think it's something really for um, anthropologists to mine the way that, um, that, that the sort of paranoid strain, as it's been called, moves through American or just really all of um all of society these days because of the internet because of um um because of actual conspiracies that make people distrust institutions and um you know there's a sort of a credibility gap that didn't used to exist and it's filled with things like birds aren't real um anyway that was a fascinating poem and a fun poem for Tuesday by Devin Balwit so I'm glad we could preview that and sorry Devin couldn't make it to the show um, and now the for the prompt, like I mentioned, the prompt this week was to walk, take a walk, basically, around your neighborhood and write a poem about that. Um, I wasn't able to, I didn't have time to write a poem this week, but here's Megan's. This was taking the dog for a walk, and hey, I know this dog. Here we go. Taking a dog, taking the dog for a walk. This December is gray and snowless, and the inflatable Santas are drooping, but the twinkle. Lights try their best to light up a stubborn gloom. The cold seeps in, but my boots are dry. The world hurts, but it also glows. Sometimes I hate my capacity for gratitude, the way it lingers like an ache, the way it pushes me along when all I want to do, what I want, all I want is to stop and rest. 
We pass the Gun Lives Matter house, and then we pass the Pride Flag house. They're next to each other, a metaphor for something, but who has the time for metaphors when the sky is dark? Who has the time for anything else? When I come home, my hair smells like chimney smoke and fire, fir trees, and the dog has rolled in the leaves, and the cold clings to me like a secret. And my daughter asks me, Mom, did you come up with a poem? And I say, No, I didn't but I guess I'll write one anyway. And that was Megan's poem. Uh, another great poem by Megan. You're, it's a treat to get a poem from Megan every week that was taking the dog for a walk and much better than me sharing one of my own. So um, so let's go to the uh, open lines and see what you have. For us, we have um, a whole bunch of uh, poets to share. We have, um, let's see, so we have some first-time callers. I'm going to do somebody who's familiar to the show first. And then, um, and then we'll get to some first-time callers too. Um, just so you can see how it goes. The one thing I have to tell you is that the, there's a delay. It's like one of those old-time radio shows. So there's a delay. It'll be confusing if you're listening. So as soon as I call you, mute or just shut off completely, X out of the window where you're watching the stream, because otherwise they'll be talking to two people at the same time in some kind of crazy time warp, and you won't know what's going on, and it's very confusing. So so make sure that you mute the stream that you're watching it, and then just talk to me through the phone or through Skype, and that's it. And also have the poem ready to read in front of you, uh, because uh, because of the same reason. Even though I'm showing it on screen, it's not in the same place as you will be, so you can't actually read it off the screen um, from the stream, you know? So anyway, let's uh, let's call up... Um, let's do... We'll do Nivedita, because um, it's late in India, and uh, we'll do Nivi first. Then we'll get to um, Caitlin Buxbaum, and then we'll do some first-time callers, and then we have um, Zachary Honeycutt. Um, Sandy Gertz is a first-time caller, I believe. We have a 403, a 615, Spartacus is here. So we've got a lot of great poets. Richard Westheimer, of course, going to share some poems. We've got a lot of great poets in the house. And let's call up Nivy first. Hey, Nivedita, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing great, thank you. How about you? I'm doing great. And I love your new um, you know, your new setup or, or for uh, you're on a laptop or something now, so I don't have to adjust the screen uh, yeah. size. <laughs> That's great. Yes, I just downloaded Skype. Uh, I think about four years. I've had this laptop for a while. It's the new Spectre. I had it for a while, but then I was just like, I was like, wait, why am I not downloading Skype on this? I type everything on this. Why haven't I downloaded it? So that's great. I finally remembered to download it. Well, it's nice to see you all um, all leveled out. So, um, so, so, what do you want to share with us today? Um, as usual, I have both a prompt and a new story poem. So, whichever one you have first. Sure. Um, the one I have up is the view of my world, which I guess is the prompt poem. Uh-huh. That is the prompt poem. So basically, as you know, I live in a city in an apartment complex. So it's it's not like I can walk out and I have beautiful fir trees and chimneys like you do there. For me, it's not like the view is uninspiring by any means. I have the metro line that runs right past and mm-hmm. there are quite a few houses. There's always something happening around here. Living in a city is also quite interesting. You're always surrounded by life. So I think that's, that's just what I wanted to showcase in this poem so it's the view outside my window not not a walk uh, through the roads excellent sounds good here let's hear it the view of my world the yellow line is lit which it usually never is and the track stands under the scorching indian sun forlorn and empty much like the flat next door was occupants just up and left stating the need for something better a better view than the rooftops of uninspiring flats and the metro line were they expecting the Taj Mahal? Little did they know the primetime reality TV gold they were missing out on. The greatest show on earth happening right outside my window. There, to the house on my right, a Shih Tzu is howling at the sun. 
while a woman is hanging out the washing, as it is her job to do so, and an older lady, her mother-in-law perhaps, as that is how things here go, multi-generational families on the groom side live together. The bright side? Well, that's a whole other primetime TV saga. She is drawing pop-downs on the terrace, swatting away at those pesky crows and pigeons. The house on the left is bedecked with swags of colourful cloth streamers, and a huge shamyana is erected out back, while in front, a snazzily dressed orchestra in red and gold welcomes the visitors to this wintertime wedding. And still, the yellow line has not gone by. Like clockwork, it usually runs, every two minutes, either direction. But now, it's been five, and there's not a train in sight. I wonder what the problem is. Uh, very interesting. Look at uh, look at life outside the window. And, you know, our window is very boring here. I mean, it, it, it seems like, oh, nice to be surrounded by you know, big pine trees and things, but uh, but nothing happens. Nothing <laughs> so, happens. Yeah, I mean, the same squirrels are out there, you know, fighting around the tree, I guess. There's I, that. I There's think it's always the question <laughs> yeah. of the grass is greener on the other side. Exactly, yeah. Like, I watch those movies, um, you know, in, in you know in the city and people looking out the and stuff mm-hmm. is all happening everywhere. And, and nope, not here. <laughs> but uh, I think everybody just wants a good mix of both, which is something that's not possible yeah, anywhere in the world, yeah, I mean, yeah, no matter where. It's, the other. it's either this or that. It's true. Okay, so so what is the um, the odd news story that you have for us today? So there's this town in Maine that has a group of people dressed in Santa costumes that ski downhills, and this time it was around 230 of them, thing, all dressed in Santa suits, skiing down the hill for some local charity in their hometown suits. It's basically weird to see 230 men slash women in red Santa suits skiing down the hill. And apparently there were a few Grinches mixed in there as well. But hey, it's for a good cause, so nobody really minded that. But anyway. That's right. Let's watch a, a couple seconds of this. Uh, this <laughs> oh, I got a commercial. Never mind. Let's not. But... um. <laughs> But um, but yeah. So you can watch this video. This is at uh, upi.com. Is odd news of the week. I think it's also on ABC News. Okay, so yeah. It's it's basically everywhere. No pictures either. So so yeah. So there's um 232 people donned Santa Claus costumes and took to the slopes on skis and snowboards to raise money for a local nonprofit. So um, yeah, really fun story. And let's hear the poem, Nibby. Okay, so I'm quite bad at singing. So just imagine this is. Uh, written to the tune of Jingle Bells, so just picture that in your head. (laughs) It's called Skiing Santas. Skiing through the snow with some poles and skis on feet, down the hill they glide, caroling all the way. The people cheer them on to help them ski along as they do this charity to help the community. St. Nick Rock, St. Nick's Rock, St. Nick all the way. But wait a sec, what's that there? A Grinch in a Santa suit? Hey, that's okay, that's okay. All are merry now. Nothing special to see here, just a sea of Santa skiing. Hey. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Nivy. Um, excellent. As always, always great to see you. Hope you have a good night. Thank you, Tim. Have a lovely Sunday morning. Yep, bye. It was uh, Nivity to Karthik. And let's go to, who did I say? Oh, yeah, Caitlin Buxbaum. Let's do Caitlin next. She hasn't been on in a bit. Then we'll do some first-time callers. I think everybody will have the drill by then. Hello, Caitlin. Great to see you. Hi. Just closing things out. Too busy pulling up other windows. Um, listening to Nibby's last poem. <laughs> yeah, of course. Her. Uh, we we have a tradition of doing that up here too um, at Alaska. Um, 
little bit south of Anchorage at the ski resort there. There's uh, it's actually going to be this Thursday. If you dress up, you get like a free pass to ski. So like if you're wearing a Santa costume, you don't you get to ski for free. Um, Yeah, we should uh, we pitch it to our local ski resort. You know, I have a ski resort three miles away. And uh, they we should. And oh, the, nice. The owner lives right across the street. I should tell him, tell him you should do a Santa run for the news coverage. Um, yeah, sure. So, uh, so what do you have that you want to share today? Um, well, I haven't been writing a lot of poems or taking walks lately. It's fifteen below today, <laughs> um, and uh, uh, have been writing some songs actually. But anyway, um, so this is one that I actually wrote in March of 2020. So it was shortly after things closed down up here for Mm -hmm. COVID because things were a little bit uh, delayed. People make jokes about like things in the lower 48 take 10 years to get to Alaska. But (laughs) um, anyway, so it's kind of a, it's called observation poem. And I just sort of wrote down things that I saw and was remembering as I was walking. Um, And yeah, that's, what I have to say about that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, go ahead. I have it up for everybody. All right. Observation poem. Bullwhip flinch. Bell peppers in the ditch. But this is not a time of plenty. Track meets in memory only. Birdsong. The smell of burning trash. A red Budweiser box. Spring bereft of spring. Icy wind folds into gloved silence. Prompts and battles the urge to run, but not through half-frozen puddles. Two quick cars pass on covetously cleared pavement. A house is building itself slowly, beside gutter glaciers, sloughing off metrically, disrupted by a mouthful of gasoline. Laundry detergent wafts over a plethora of pebbles before dogs barking alternately. No trespassing and beware the mailbox barf. A pile of printers, but no free sign, stands sentry. Keep out, suns my chilly cheeks, feeds the urge to run again. Echoes of a different Alaska I experienced. No trespassing, private property. I pause enough, think I'm communicating with someone, not only communing with myself, nature. The wet earthen smell of breakup. Scattered. Debris. Constant debris. And the fear it won't look like we're taking it seriously. If we're not excessively apart. Covered to extremity. A sniffle, sneeze, or cough can't be blamed on the weather anymore. Watch your footing. If you fall, no one will help you up. Excellent. Thanks for sharing that, Kaylin. Great poem. It's great to see you again. Uh, I was worried, you know, Alaska time, the early morning show might be a little too early, but it's good to see you. Well, I I didn't realize that you guys had switched back for one thing, but um, I've also been really busy. Um, the I think I mentioned last time I was on the journal that I, I picked up mm-hmm. um, in New Hampshire. Uh, finally wrapped that, sending it uh, to the printer on Monday for the proof um so hooray it's done (laughs) (laughs) i think Uh assuming everything goes well um yeah it's always a good feeling to get that get that done yeah for sure um so is next week's show going to be at the same time yeah they're all going to be this time from now on okay because next week i already have poems that i want to read so (laughs) i'll try (laughs) to be there great well we'll see you next week caitlin it's always a pleasure yep same
is uh, Caitlin Buxbaum. And you can find Caitlin, by the way, at her website, which is down here, Kate, that's C-A-I-T, Buxbaum, B-U-X-B-A-U-M.com. And um, yeah, if anybody has a website they want to share while you send a poem, please don't hesitate. I'll read it out and get some visitors there. Okay, let's try some first-time callers now. And uh, let's see, who do we have first? I think it was going to be, yeah, let's call up Sandy Gertz. And Sandy just sent a poem here. We have Spartacos 2, Zachary Honeycutt. Hello, Sandy. I think I hear myself in the background, so mute or that or close it off. I'm out of it. I didn't expect it to uh, (laughs) pop up in my bedroom here. I thought it was going to be a phone call on my phone. Oh, I see. Yeah, no, so it's either Skype or phone. So so we're doing Skype, which means we can see you. But it's great to have you, Sandy. So this is Sandy Gertz. Uh, Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Nashville, but um, I'm a West PA person, friend of Jim's. So oh, okay. yay, Jim Daniels and his work. I love it. Yeah, I'm very loving. cool. I'm so glad. It's always good to see new faces. Um, and what did you want to share with us today? So as far as the walk in the neighborhood, I'm the one that sent in the timely one about the Jeffrey Epstein, which ah. is pretty depressing and short. So I figured I have one about walking around the neighborhood 20 years ago that... <laughs> Um, kind of spins off something you said. We don't really have the uh, the accents and the you know the colloquialisms as much mm-hmm. you know with our online culture. So I'll read this one kind of for Jim and spinning off of that schist and at so n uh, apostrophe a t in Western PA Johnstown PA means like and all the rest. And this was like me comparing the geology and rocks underneath the eastern part of the state with the western part of the state where I grew up, Shistanat. On Dale porches tonight, the faces are sagging shale. No smiles like in photos gracing the volumes of Ferndale yearbooks. They watch skeletons of small game drift in the tired creek and know they are not the metamorphic glimmer of the east. Just ripples of the stream joining the little Connemaw Rising for dances at the fire hall or a drink at Ernie's Tavern. Carbon rich, they puff menthols and build their volcanic ash. Old man Rick flicks cigarette stubs from the rocking glider, his contents compressed under the pressure of the Iron City flip tab. Aluminum rings gather on the stoop and coal tinted kids string an endless necklace, breathing in smoky circles of air. Rick sheds layers with the dusk, dissolves into flaking schist and the stories of a thousand loaded boxcars, how for 55 years he turned limestone into marble. He sits at the highest point in Dale as the hills cast golden spells of light, filtering the last of the day's sun. He chews on sunflower seeds and spits, watching the shells settle into the blazing dirt. Oh, that was excellent. I'm so glad you could share that. And, and yeah, it is. There's just so much it feels like we're losing. Um, you know, just cultures everywhere. Just being, you know, every time I go anywhere, I'm just shocked at how many. Like like I went to, to um, Spain, to Mallorca, was one of the only yeah. places I've gone. And there was like a Toys R Us. And I was like, what? <laughs> what is, I don't want to see, I don't want to go to Spain and see Toys R Us. No, um, yeah. exactly, exactly. So, um, so do you want to read the other poem too that you sent? Um, the uh, Jeffrey Shore, uh, just to end on the most depressing note. 
Um, I have, uh, what I have okay. is in, inhaling an almost post-COVID Nashville. Oh, that's that's my walking around my Nashville neighborhood recently. Do you want to do that? Do you one? want that? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. Okay. Sure. Inhaling an almost post-COVID Nashville. A writer friend once said, we'll always have Paris, as though he was the first to say it. But now I don't even have Ireland, nor any trains to complain about, nor even Irish B&B owners who frown at my bra tops found spilling out of my suitcase into their vestibules. I know my bedroom now and the corners of my house, the smoky fog that creeps into East Nashville's Shelby Bottoms, while candles are lit on 16th Street courtyards and whiskeys are poured in ancient stable bars. Young men in charcoal masks mix drinks and blow into the flames as I inhale the pH old-fashioned and a chaser of PM 2.5. Molten images dissipate with each sip, a man standing against the lumen bushes of Postignano, Italy, a bracelet left in a napkin at the gelateria in Spoleto's town square. Today, I have these United States, and they are on fire as I watch the sun set milky against pastel sky, rethinking the world over 100 proof, maskless and determined not to burn. Excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that. I was inhaling an almost post-COVID Nashville. Two really great poems. I'm so glad you could share them. I hope you can share some more again in the future. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Yeah. So that was uh, Sandy Gertz with uh, two poems. And uh, next up, let us do, let's call Spartacus and then we'll do this. Then we'll do the numbers. We have um, a 615 and a, I thought I saw two. Yeah, and a 403. So we'll do those two. We'll do Spartacus first, though. Spartacus and Agnostris. Hey, Spartacus. Hello. How are you doing today? Let me get you adjusted here. One second. I'm doing really well, Tim and you. I'm doing great. It's a great morning. Uh, good poetry. Um, just love. I love doing these shows. It's just so fun. And it's great to see you now that the time's better for you. Um, what is it that you want to share today? Yeah. Yeah, I've got a poem about my neighborhood. So Excellent. I would like to say, uh-huh. and it's called I Live. And where, where are you now? Like what, na- what neighborhood is this? This is in Bristol. Ah, oh, you're in Bristol now. Okay, cool. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. well, go ahead. I have it up whenever you're ready. I, mm-hmm. I live in a neighborhood that is more crowded with people than the Christmas market in the town center. I hate it when it rains outside. Trees, dogs, people, and recycling bins compete for space. On the pavement, children paint with chalk and young skaters listen to music. I love my neighborhood. Sometimes, I leave a book and I borrow another from the little Clyde library, an old post box that somebody has converted into a small library of forgotten letters and postcards. My neighborhood is the joggers of Benny Hill Show. They do their daily exercise while pushing a pram or while talking to their mobile. In the evenings, when I return to my place, 
I always meet a fox that stands as if a winged statue of victory in the middle of the road and stares at me for a few seconds before it decides to disappear. Oh, I love that. Thanks so much for sharing this. Where I guess it was I live. Um, thanks so much, Spartacus. That was great. Thanks, mm-hmm. Yeah, I was Thanks for today. Yep. Bye. Bye. Yeah, that was Spartacos and Agnostorus with uh, I Live. And that makes me want to live there for sure. Um, okay, let's see. Let's, let's do some of those first time callers. We have the um, 615. Let's see who might be there. Hey, this is Tim with Rattle, and you are live on the air. Who am I talking to? Hi, this is Bev Mundell-Atherstone. I think I'm just using a different phone than last time. I think so. I'm so. not a first-time caller. Yeah, well, it's great I to... I called yeah, last week. Yeah, it's great to hear you again. Um, so what did you want to share? Well, I've, <clears throat> we live outside the city in on an acreage. Um, oh, I hear oh, myself in the background, sorry. so just X, yeah, get, get out yeah, of here. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> there, we, there we go. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. Um, so we live in southern Alberta on the edge of the coulees on the Old Man River. Oh, nice. And, um, yeah, so I wanted to share a winter's walk. Okay, well, have it up. Go ahead whenever you're ready. Okay, thank you. Joining me in this white plain of tiny, brilliant prisms are two cats, sense an adventure. Curious, hoping for mice, they run ahead with our neighbors, We share two sibling pairs. Ours, the females, stalk every moving thing. Scattering snow with her huge, wild paws, then chasing pea-sized snowballs. Bangles, our half-Bengal cat, pounces on imaginary prey as I crunch along. Her cousin, Thunderbolt, daily escaping the neighbor's children's clutching claws watches from safety atop an upended log, wary of my human presence. His sister, Fluffy, our soft-as-silk angora, surveys the scene before she joins the phantom chase. Her paw prints create a dimpled, zigzag trail, unlike the rabbit tracks of paired forefeet. Blue-gray hues of pockmarked snow herald the presence of our local mule-deer herd, whose hooves gash ski marks in the deeper drifts. In winter's hunger, the herd survives on our hardy evergreens, which we augment with their favorite root vegetable scraps. Twin half-grown fawns tug at our shrubs, pruning the toughened stems. They bleat for their dam, who, pregnant from the recent rut, chews her cud and dozes. Nearby, roaring their self-important rage, tires stuck in muddy drifts, frighten the deer who slew and skid along the icy road. Clutching tree limbs, the startled cats survey their realm shattered now into a million icy pieces. Oh, that was excellent, Bev. Thanks so much for sharing that. I'm really enjoying these, um, this prompt of um, getting to see everybody's neighborhoods. Um, it's a really fun one. I, I didn't expect uh, how much I would enjoy this, but I'm really enjoying uh, 
you're getting to, 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 to take a walk with everybody. Yes, you really get to go across all, all of North America. <laughs> yeah, and, for sure. And, and India. Yeah, and India and, 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 uh, and Bristol, uh, UK. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yes. How fun. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, take care. Always a pleasure, Bev. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Yeah, that was um, Bev Wendell Atherstone. And let me put Bev on our call list. We make sure we know who it is. At this number as well. Okay. Next up, let's go to, let's call up Richard Westheimer. I know I'm just, I shock everybody <laughs> when I, uh, when the phone rings. Sorry for not giving any warning. Hey, Mr. Westheimer, how are you doing today? Good morning, Tim Green. It's great to see you. Um, and and I would love to look out your window and see a different squirrel every day. But <laughs> well, uh, let me see if I can. Uh, do I have the? Here, I'll, sh- I'll show everybody at home. You can. Uh, well, maybe I'll, I'll show you after we hang up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you can That's actually up. see it. my view out the window. We do have the um, what I called the snow cam, but it hasn't snowed in you know since March, so I haven't put that out yet. Well, the sun is always at a different angle in the sky, so the shadows are always a little different. That is and, true. If you really, you know, were to, to take fine notes of what you see out this window, it would be interesting. <laughs> well, that, that uh, the, the interview was great today, and I loved sort of thinking about how poets um, tap into memory, perhaps those even with bad memories like me. Yeah, and me too. <laughs> um, yeah, so what did you want to share? Uh, so I, uh, if there's time for two, I have yeah, my, yeah, we my PR poem, and um, uh, which was When White Boys Claim America. Why don't I start with that one? Okay, sure. I'll pull it up. But why don't you introduce it as I do that? Okay. What's it about? Yeah, so there, there was sort of an obscure march of folks from what was called the Patriot Front, which was a renamed group from Charlottesville that was Mm. instrumental in the violence in Charlottesville, but they rebranded themselves to avoid lawsuits and bad press. And they had a sort of like a flash mob march on the Capitol Mall with, you know, marching and drums and waving banners and yelling, you know, chanting uh, slogans. And they were in and out of there in about five minutes, but it was frightening if you look Mm. at you know, frightening in the scheme of things. If you think that this is not a flash in the pan, yeah, it's the. I haven't actually seen it. I heard a couple of people mention it, and so I'm looking at some pictures now on the article that you shared, and um, yeah, the the uniformity is the creepiest part of it. I think you know. Yeah, they're they are uniformed, right? They yeah. are, or as I sort of thought about it as I was looking, is they are costumed. You know, mm-hmm. they they are. It's sort of cosplay, Nazi cosplay. Yeah, well. yeah, bizarre. Okay, well, go ahead with this poem whenever you are ready. Well, when white boys claim America. Khaki is the or when white boys claim America. Khaki is the new camo, part of the costume Aryan man boys wear when they brown boot the pavement, rage a drumbeat of feet. They sink with the arteries pulsing on their foreheads and the grind of their teeth. They fist pump oaths to victory or death into the cloudless DC evening air. uh, Setting sunlight flashes on their makeshift shields, transparent as their fear, gravid as the handguns stuffed in their pants. These lost boys 
wave flags like Peter Pan playing pirates, don bandanas like I did uh, when, as a child, I got to be one of those cowboys chasing after the short straw Indians in our backyard. They dress up like the action figures my kids mimicked when they marauded the woods, terrorized rabbits and squirrels, charged up from the creek bottoms in a phalanx of neighborhood boy warriors armored with scraps of plywood. Back in D.C., those khaki-clad stomp marchers cover their faces like the original Ku Kluxers, the ones who borrowed their mommy's bedsheets and brandish their white guy anger like burning crosses. They bark, reclaim America, reclaim America, reclaim America, like an end days incantation that will summon a Glock-strapped, flag-draped Jesus to march with them. I feel hopeless, as dismayed as when my wilding preteens hunted rabbits with rocks. But my boys grew up quick, when a stone hit home, brained a bunny that died in my crying eight-year-old's hands. Yeah, excellent poem. Yeah, that's it's interesting that, that it evokes exactly what the, the pictures evoke. Yeah, good, good poem there, yeah. Dick. And then the other one you wanted to share was the prop poem. Yeah, Which, the prop poem. I'm sorry, it's not actually a full as 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 lovely a walk around my neighborhood, but uh, it's a little attempt at a prose poem series. Okay, yeah, we'll go ahead whenever I have this too. Okay, New World Order. One, Mars was missing last night from the gathering along the ecliptic. The moon and Jupiter and Saturn and Venus arced up from the horizon, kept company with me, big as all the Earth. I hear only the small sounds of my heartbeat and shallow breath so long as I pay no attention to the road noise and construction equipment still working by Klieg light over the hillside. If Mars were here, red and wary, he'd warn that those sounds were the drums of war, tell stories of old feuds among the gods that were settled with lesser weapons than track hose and long-haul trucks and with less havoc. Two. I have not seen a cardinal this winter, nor heard the chip-chip-chip-chip cheer from the trees. There are no finches at the feeder. A solitary jay scrabbles its claws against the gutter and jeers peevishly into the chill air. Winds have blown from the north seven times in the last seven days. The wind never blows from the north around these parts. Not a single house mouse has scrabbled from under the stove. Even the cats are confused. Three, only the tall trees were damaged in the storm last night, some with broken limbs which litter the woods, another uprooted lying across the lane. The neighbor men gather with chainsaws in hand and begin to trim. Some of the women haul loosed branches into the thicket while others stand in a clutch on the hill and speak in mysteries. On the forest floor, the fungi carry on their eternal work. Another great poem. Now, thanks for sharing that, the New World Order. And you're in like Southern Ohio, right? We are, we are. We got, we got the peripheral mm -hmm. winds, not very, you know, typically damaging from the horrific yeah. 
uh, tornadoes. Yeah, the, that... the, the pictures from from uh, Kentucky are just horrific. It's it's really hard to um, imagine what people are going through right now. You know, yeah. I, I, I know you don't have subscriptions to like the Post or the Times, but there's a Washington Post before and after aerials mm-hmm. that brings tears to your eyes. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it really you know you know you get different different. Um, you know, disasters no matter where you are almost except for maybe the, the northeast of the united states doesn't have much. oh they had tornadoes in connecticut this past yeah. summer that, that's true too yeah but i was thinking like we you know we have earthquakes and fires and um but no tornadoes i think tornadoes might be the most terrifying of them all because you don't know where you know it could be anywhere and i don't know you know and you know it's coming there's there's something like psychological that seems more terrifying about those than any other disaster to me maybe it's because i haven't experienced them but well, we've spent many a time responding to uh, tornado warnings huddled yeah. with kids in the basement. Yeah, yeah. So that's what you do. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing those two poems, Richard. It's always a pleasure talking to you and, and yeah. hearing your great work. Uh, thanks, Tim. Talk to you soon. Yeah. Bye. So Richard Westheimer with The New World Order and When White Boys Claim America. Let's go to, um, let's go to Philip Stern. And then we'll do Alex Hines. Well, maybe we'll do a couple random poems um, just to share, and then we'll do the Saiku. So here's Philip Stern. Oh, and Carla Schwartz and Ted Guevara have poems they sent in but can't join us. So we'll do those too. Hey, Philip, how are you doing today? Good, good. And you? I'm doing great. Um, what do you have that you would like to share? Okay, I have two prompt poems. Ah, two, okay. <laughs> one belated from last week, mm-hmm. and then uh, one neighborhood for today. Um, the first one, um, the prompt actually fed into my old wordplay ways. <laughs> <laughs> for everybody uh, who doesn't remember from last week, the prompt was to coin a word. And so, right. so the word here is crambivalence, which I just love. Right. Crambivalence means having too many mixed feelings, like much of mean kind. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's good. Crambivalence. Another one I have to add to the dictionary. I doubt it, but <laughs> it was fun writing. <laughs> uh, the second one, obviously, is about the neighborhood. And um, I live in the outskirts of the land which is a small college town in central Florida Mm -hmm. in a 55-plus community. And uh, we share space with a fair amount of wildlife, and uh, the birds in this poem uh, do live here year-round. It's called Common Ground. Sandhill cranes walk among us, confident we will not harm them or their children. A stroll tall on moist grass or stand bold in the middle of our private roads. So wary they know that humans here who walk their dogs on leashes and wave smiling to speed limited cars are creatures of a certain age whose own children are long flown and not much prone to carelessness or rage. Oh, that was an excellent one. I love where that goes. Common ground. Thanks for sharing that, Philip. You're welcome, and thanks for allowing me to. <laughs> yeah, it's always a pleasure. And another another great walk through a different neighborhood, which is just fun, fun to see. So thanks for sharing that. 
You're welcome. Bye. Bye. That was Philip Stern with uh, those two poems. And let us next. Oh, Joey Stahl too just called in. So we'll we'll call up um, Alex Hines. Then we'll call up Joey Stahl. I'll read a couple more poems, and that'll be the show. I think. So if I if I haven't mentioned your name, it's because I missed you. But I, I think we got everybody on the list. Hey, Joey, how you doing today? Are you there? Well, you got Alex. Oh, it's Alex. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry about that. Oh no, it's my fault. Yeah, I I I guess I clicked the wrong or well the right button. <laughs> I said the wrong name well, while it, I was clicking the button I meant to click. Ah, it's all right. Skype bringing to three devices and my <laughs> always tends to throw me off too. So I feel your pain on that one. Yeah, <laughs> no problem. So so this is Alex Hines, and uh, where where are you from? I can't remember. Um, I'm in, right now. I live in Clarksburg, West Virginia. Ah, okay, cool. And so, do you have a neighborhood poem? What do you got for us? Yeah, I did a neighborhood poem for the week. It's kind of I like having these prompts because it's a good place to start from usually, and then see where we end up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very cool. Well, it's a lot of fun to uh, to see these ones. So this is lights or lack thereof. And go ahead whenever you're ready. I have it up. All right, thanks. Uh, there's a special quality about one a.m. lights. They lie to us. They tell us a different story. A quick wander around the neighborhood as I catch my breath from taking the hills at speed. All the residents of my little enclave seem snug in bed as porch lights and Christmas strings mingle their shows together. But the big house just across the street turned off most of their twinkling chains some time ago. Another block down the road and Santa's chubby inflatable self has face planted next to one of his reindeer still puffed up for recognition. Crest the hill and in front of another lawn, rather dim but clearly with visible outlines, is an unlit Christmas display to rival Janine's down the street. Why has the big house stopped its celebrations? Did no one check on Santa? And why did Janine's arch rival not show off all night long? Over the biggest hill, I think the lights are more honest. They show only enough warmth to get by. A sign of how their more humble occupants live even when holidays are a distant thought. But where I am, people can hide from those stresses and put on a good face, or at least a well-lit front yard. Around us, there are drugs and crime, like many city neighborhoods nowadays, alas. They would never be here, right? Perhaps Santa's inspection of the ground holds more meaning than we think. Perhaps not. No one nearby may ever know. Turning away from the dark, decoration-filled final lawn, the blue glow of the VA hospital's massive sign is seen across the valley. Nearby, hanging on its nursing home, a star of Christmas lights. I pray those are honest lights. Excellent. Thanks for sharing that. That was Alex Hines, uh, Lights or Lack Thereof. Another excellent poem and a great look at another neighborhood. Um, really glad you could join us and share that. Thank you. Yep. Have a good one. Yeah. Okay, so now let's try Joy Stall. I'll get the right poem up this time. Hello. Hey, Joy. How are you doing today? All right. I thought I wasn't going to get this poem finished in time. <laughs> yeah, it was a, a last minute. How many minutes ago? Five minutes ago is when it was received in my inbox. Um, and, yeah. and where are you from? Are you from, um, is it Georgia or North Carolina or something like that? Kansas. Kansas. That's right. Okay. Kansas. So this is a walk around a Kansas neighborhood. And is there anything else you yeah. want to say about it? Nope. Okay, go ahead. I have it up on screen whenever you are ready. All right. My neighborhood. For me to take a walk around my neighborhood, it requires preparation. First, I must get Andromeda's harness and leash. To the cat, I say, get your coat on. 
I have to make sure the Velcro fastens securely, brushing aside her long, silky fur. I open the door and say, Andromeda, outside. And she rushes out the door, eager for her walk. She leads me to every house, especially the ones with a nice fence, where she perches while I stand. As we walk, my view is cat, tail held high, leading me around the block, stopping to stare at dogs who bark at us. As we walk, my view is fallen leaves that the cat stops to play with, uncovering bugs to torture. As we walk, my view is neighbors, because Andromeda loves people, hurries to where she hears voices. When we get around the block, headed north toward our house, I say, Andromeda, go home. Oh, that was excellent. Another great poem. Uh, that was My Neighborhood by Joy Stahl. Thanks so much, Joy. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Yep, have a good one. You too. Yeah, Joey Stahl with my neighborhood. So we've been to let me let me just list. So so Megan started with um, Southern California mountains. Then we went up to Alaska. We went got to Bristol in the UK. We had two Floridas. We have a Kansas. We have a Pacific or uh, a British Columbia. We have India. Hmm. Interesting. So a lot of great walks around different neighborhoods. I have a couple more poems left for me to read. This is Ted Guevara's neighborhood. Um, let's see. Well, maybe it's not a neighborhood. It is neighborhood walk. Uh, Ted says this poem deals with a kind of taboo subject, especially around the holidays. Growing up, I read a lot of Robert Frost. The only way to approach this subject is by way of nature, as in Frost's Out Out, which is a great poem. It's probably my favorite Frost poem. Such a harrowing story in that poem. The thing about it is we live through it, and it's out there near us, not in the news or tabloid. Um, it's still flash fiction, maybe a couple more drafts to make it a real poem. This is Raker, Raker by Ted Guevara. Raker and Raker. As long as I have sourwood and winged elm leaves thick on my yard, I am a worthy resident in my neighborhood. Two elderly men say so. What they don't approve of is my idea that leaves on the ground are beautiful, I, being from the North, see uniqueness in what they see as gold and labor. I can't freely say their wholesome names. One raker says he has lived among these burdened houses for twenty years. The realtor says they wait, that wait has lifted a decade ago, and now the picture of a regular Pleasantville. Children play in the street here and go to the sides when the cars cruise slowly by. The other raker says he just follows the first raker. What he says goes. I kick on a small pile of sourwood leaves and let a small gale play with it. The two rakers look at me strangely, but they hold their patience till I hire them to rake my yard. For pay, they haggle for my very last bid. But I myself was holding back, and when I mentioned I have coronas in my fridge, that itself topped any amount mentioned. After two autumns, I still live in a safe neighborhood. A raker knocks on my door, wanting another sweep. I ask where is his buddy. He seems solitary, where he stands among the loose-winged elms. He tells me no can do. The second raker has been confined at the county jail. I ask why, and without pause, the first raker utters for child molestation. Startled, I step back. I recall what the realtor has said had lifted from this neighborhood. How narrow of me. The first raker anticipated my okay. Rakers don't need to be in pairs to finish a yard, he seems to be saying. The weight of the past are not on them. 
It's just when days become colder and the trees are mercilessly naked above them. Really, that is a, a taboo subject, but a great poem, um, Raker and Raker. Thanks for sharing that, Ted. Um, yeah, very vivid, vividly described. And let's go to, you know, I was thinking I have a, an Out My Window poem I could share from my book. I haven't shared a poem from this book in a while. This book is American Fractal, the only book I ever published. And there is a poem where I'm looking out my window. So here it is. I don't know if I've shared this one before or not, but this is the Looking Out the Window poem. And it's back when we lived in um, in Los Angeles. We lived by the freeway. Um, so you could kind of hear the freeway coming, the 101 in the morning as the cars kind of ramped up. Although it was a constant swoosh too, even at night. And here this is a um, poem from Dark Matter. First light through the limbs of the trees, and then the trees... Each morning the hum of traffic through the freeway wall, and then the traffic we're bottled in, each thing first betrayed by the shapes around it, as if shadows held all our weight, like the empty space that props each fiery nest of stars, the smooth circumference of every heavenly body toward which astronomers might dream. I'm at the kitchen window, early light, reading science for tea leaves. Pluto, it seems, is far colder than we thought. Even the constant speed of light is decaying. And look where thoughts can lead. Somewhere in a lonely future, a man hears his heart stop beating long before the world goes black. So slow the rate at which nothing approaches. Or maybe like an ostrich, we'll outrun our past. And then our present. And this, my gift to you, whatever you'll make of it. The soul, a ship in a bottle lost at sea, drops its anchor anyway. That was poem from Dark Matter. Uh, from my book, American Fractal, which you can find right there. And uh, the, the the Zachary Honeycutt poems reminded me of that. So I thought maybe I'd share that. And we have a, a poem or two, actually, two very short poems from Carla Schwartz. Oh, and she has audio. Let me see if I can figure out how to play it really quick. I should have been setting this up. Let's see. So desktop. Here we go. Okay, so I think we have Carla Schwartz actually reading these poems. Oh, we have two. Okay, let me see. I got to do two. Okay, so here is um, around the block, and I let slip. We'll do around the block first. This is Carla Schwartz's poems, and let's see if we can get the audio fast enough that we can actually use it. I let it slip by Carla Schwartz. Out in the neighborhood, I stop to share friendly chit chat over dogs. We talk of new construction, of bad shoulders, of holiday plans. Unless there's a death, I let slip. With not too much emphasis, I hope on the dark. As I ride away, I think, how could I have said that? But then, how could I have not, when there's a big black dot on the calendar of hope? Oh, very interesting poem. That was Carla Schwartz with I Let It Slip. Then let's find the other one. Okay, here we go. And hopefully this is loud enough. The only problem with um, playing videos live is I can't edit the audio. I can boost it a little bit, but there's a limited amount. The other short one, this is Around the Block. So her, um, Carla, is, and Carla lives up in the, in the Northeast. So this is Around the Block by Carla Schwartz. Around the Block. It's balmy on this neighborhood ride I take around the block. In his hospital room, my father lies. 
his balmy neighborhood ride won't occur till he's died. Until then I suppress my tears and talk. Say, it was balmy that neighborhood ride I took around the block. Oh, that was a beautiful, beautiful poem. That, what was that form? I can't remember the name of it right now off the top of my head. But a wonderful poem, Around the Block, by Carla Schwartz. Um, thanks for sharing that, Carla. And um, what else do we have? Let me do, I always want to, I want to keep remembering to do some random poems while we ha- if we have time. And here is a random button selection. Um, yeah, a good poem, The Religion of Weather. This is from way back in Rattle 14. This is Marilyn Fournette Adams. And there's no audio, so I will just read it for you. But here is here is the note. Let's see. So Marilyn Fournette Adams says, At 42, or 52, I am a graduate student at the University of Louis, Louisiana Lafayette who just learned that you don't have to take your clothes out of the dryer when the buzzer sounds. I write poetry because it suits my ADHD brain. And this is a this is a blast from the past. Rattle number fourteen, winter two thousand, and the poem here is "The Religion of Weather" by Marilyn Ann Fournette or Mar- Marilyn Fournette Adams. The religion of weather. I am a weather girl. Always have been. Charting cold fronts at breakfast like it was a church, over Cheerios, squall lines barreled like holy rollers through the kitchen. Daddy on the radio, the telephone with flight service, weather beckoning. Used to wish I was a lightning rod, so I'd answer. Got a Siberian Express for Valentine's one year. Brought snow. February's isobars like power lines to a teeming city. White flake chatter on the lines advancing. Marching neat as teeth across topographies, Louisiana in a candy box. Only girl I know, except my sisters, can talk about the backside of a high or what a thunderbuster's thinking in its pretty anvil, how to grade the hail by size, what rides Alberta's clippers like a cushmar, or why the east wind's quiet, a zephyr always aloft. Alto cumulus, alto stratus, pray for us. Zero cumulus, zero stratus, cirrus, grant us peace. Cumulonimbus, stratus, girl, stratus, nimbus, thundercloud. All dark pearls are white, building their litany to fall in love with the answer. All ye holy orders of blessed spirits be for us. And that was from rattle number 14, um, a little bonus poem, The Religion of Weather by Marilyn Fournette Adams. And now let's do a quick saiku to round out the show. And the saiku for this week, the story that inspired it, another thing that, that um, sort of fits with this time of year was this article. This is from the University of Toledo. And it's going to be too wide to put on the on the screen, I believe, but um, the study shows critical need to reduce use of road salt in winter suggests best practices. So this is out of the University of Toledo, and they looked at the, the environmental impact from all the road salt we used, and there was a stat on here. Um, where was it? There was an amazing amount of salt. It was like eight pounds of salt per square meter is how much we use. Um, I can't find it, but it was something like that. Like per meter of road, we use something like in the north anyway. Oh, there it is. Between yeah, here, usage varies by state, but the amount of salts applied to icy roads annually in some regions can vary between approximately 3 and 18 pounds of salt per square meter, which is only about the size of a kitchen table, of course. And up here, 
in the Angeles National Forest where we live, um, they used to, when we first moved here about 10 years ago, they only spread cinders, um, and they just started adding brine. Um, and, and I always thought, I was told like by the locals that, uh, that they don't use salt because of the trees. We want to protect these beautiful Jeffrey pine and, and all the other pine trees that we have. And, you know, making salt water um, a part of the, the, the soil is not a good thing. And, um, but this study looked at, at how much the impact is and found, you know, wells being salinated near roads um, and all sorts of problems from chlorine. They even, they even realized that it had something to do with the, the water problem in Flint, Michigan, because the chlorine from salt corrodes pipes when it gets in the water supply like that. And so the problem is that there's no real good alternative to salt, um, that's it's economic or helpful and salt prevents auto accidents by 78%. So it's difficult to know what to exactly to do about this problem. Um, but it also made me think about how salt used to be, um, you know, if there's a great book called salt, I can't remember who the author was about the history of salt and how it used to be such a valuable commodity. And, you know, the reason why we have the word salary for our pay is because Roman soldiers were paid in salt. And there are all those sort of stories like that, all those words derived from salt. And and now we just throw it on the road. And we have so much salt that it causes a problem because we just dump it on the road to use briefly. And so here is my a little psych about that right now. Driving over abundance road salt. Driving over abundance road salt. That is our psych for today. And next week's prompt is going to be write a tricube, a form invented by Philip Luria that consists of three stanzas made up of three lines where each line contains three syllables. So you have this sort of like three cube kind of thing going on, which is why they call it a tricube. Um, three lines, stanzas, three three-line stanzas with three syllables in each line. So there's going to be very short poems. If you want to write a few, feel free to share a few or, or you know, do some other poems as well when you share the open lines. But that is next week's prompt, a very restrictive form. And next week's guest is going to be Sophia Nez. Um, Sophia, is, um, she was in the uh, issue number 73 of Rattle. Just a wonderful poet. She's been a friend of mine on Facebook for a while and an interesting personality. I really love talking to her. Looking forward to this uh, episode, Rattlecast 123. Her new book is Open Zero. Um, so we'll be going over poems from that book and talking poetry with Sophia Naz. And that is Radicast number 123 with your Tri-Cube poems, Sunday, December 19th, noon Eastern time, 9 a.m. Pacific, as always. Hope to see you then. Thanks again for a great show. It's always a pleasure doing these. And it's because of you. You know, Sitting around sharing poems with a group of people means so much to me. I just love it. And it's only because you're here. So thank you for that. And we'll see you next week. Have a good one. Goodbye.